0: Good evening to you all. If you were able to be with us this morning, we ended the service praising God with the words, Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son, endless is the victory, thou or death has won and we're going to begin our service this evening on a similar declaration of the victory that is ours in jesus one day every tongue will confess that you are god one day every knee will bow still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now so let's stand together and sing now is the time to worship heavenly father we are just so humbled when we consider the endless victory that you have won over death when we think of what it cost you to pay that ransom for us to take our place so that we could be offered your grace and your forgiveness it really just amazes us and fills us with joy it's such a comfort and reassurance for us to know that one day every tongue will confess that you are god and one day every knee will bow before you, recognising you for the sovereign king that you are. But help us not just to be a people in waiting for that great day. Help us to recognise that the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Help us each as individuals to know your plan and purpose for us today and for tomorrow. Open our hearts to your spirit to work in our lives on a daily basis. Our prayer is that we would every day be transformed to be more like Christ. Amen. Dave is going to be teaching us later from John chapter 16 and I'd like you to turn to that passage now. It's John chapter 16 and we're going to begin to read at verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and will make it known to you. Amen. (coughs) The Holy Spirit has come and is at work and is here to convict the world in regard to sin because men don't believe. And often when we're trying to explain and consider what sin is, we go back to the way that we explain it to children as being the wrong things that we've done. And although that's not wrong, I find it really interesting and challenging in the passage we read that Jesus doesn't talk here about the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin and then go on to list all the sinful acts He simply says, because men do not believe. And there was a quote from James Packer about sin which challenged me this week, and I'd like to read it to you. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honoured, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savoured, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commands of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin. Now if ever any of us thought we could convince ourselves that really we weren't bad people, we could never ever uh, make the mark if we look at that as a definition of sin. And yet Jesus has taken the wrath of God on him. He's taken our place and through salvation in him we can stand faultless before God. (coughs) We're going to just concentrate on that as we sing through the song, Come and see, come and see, come and see the King of love. And we'll stay seated during this song, and while we do that, we'll uplift our offering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please accept the gifts that have been given to you this evening from what you've provided to us. May you be honoured by both the giving and the disbursement of these funds. Amen. In the passage we read, we heard about the Holy Spirit coming to convict the world in relation to judgment because the prince of the world stands condemned now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes there's familiar words that I've read many, many, many times and all of a sudden they just strike you. And this happened to me this week and the words were from the hymn Amazing Grace, which I have probably sung over the course of my years hundreds of times. And the line that really struck me was, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved.'" And those words, grace teaching my heart to fear, in some ways seem to really sit at odds with all the assurances in the Bible of do not be afraid. But it only makes sense when we read the whole phrase together. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we understand about the wrath of God that we're convicted about our own sin and the terrible position that we're in and that should cause fear. But yet, joyously, that's not the end of the story. Grace teaches our heart to fear but it also relieves our fear that as we're convicted of the sin that we have, that there is a way open to us to take all of that away from us. In Jesus, we have the victory. He has conquered over sin and he has conquered over death. And we're going to stand and declare that now as we sing, For this purpose, Christ was revealed. The Holy Spirit has also come to us because Jesus left the earth and went to the Father, so we can no longer see him physically. So the world can no longer see Jesus as a human being. They can't see that example of perfect righteousness in human form as they, as people saw when Jesus was alive. And yet through the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of God can still be revealed to people through Jesus And also through us as we can be transformed to be more like him. Just before David comes to speak to us, I'd like us just to keep our seats and sing through the words of Spirit of God, show me Jesus. As I pray ourselves tonight that Jesus would be revealed to us through the teaching that is brought to us.
1: thank you. Elaine says that I'm not very good at uh, change. I don't do very well with it. I think somebody's moved this table from that side to this side, and it's freaking me right out. I don't know what to do. It just doesn't feel right. Anyway, okay, we'll just pray together. <laughs> She's right. Let's just pray. Father, I just wanted to ask that as we come and as we seek you now, that you'll come into our lives, and it won't just be a matter of, learning the theory of the Holy Spirit, but we'll know the reality of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and through our lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here is a scene that I'm sure many of us can identify with. A young mother went upstairs to check on her little baby. As she approached her baby's bedroom, she saw that the door was open. And peeping in, She saw her husband standing over their baby's cot with a look on his face of wonder, delight, even of enchantment. Touched by this beautiful sight and deeply moved emotionally, tears glistening in her eyes, she slipped into the room and quietly whispered to her husband, a penny for your thoughts. It's amazing, he said. Just amazing. No one will ever believe that I managed to buy a cot like that for less than £70. Now, I'm not fit to be a a judge on matters like this, but I would imagine that there are a significant number of people here tonight who have thoughts running through their minds along the lines of typical man. Focusing on a cot. On the externals and failing to see or at least failing to fully appreciate that what lies within the cot is one of the greatest miracles of God's creation. Well, while not denying that in certain areas of life it might be that some men, not me, have a predilection towards this kind of behavior. Yet this is not something that actually any of us are immune to. For you see, here in John's Gospel, in John 16, we are alerted to the ministry and the resources of the Holy Spirit provided to the Christian faced by a hostile, antagonistic world. A true miracle within the life of the Christian that so often, too often, Christians seem unable to see, unable to To appreciate and so to access, to use, to live in the joy, the fulfillment of all that God has given to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's look now then at the miracle within, at what God gives in the Holy Spirit to His people facing challenges and hardships. So what we're going to do here is look first at the Spirit working within us and then at the Spirit working through us. So, for the first aspect of the Spirit's work within us, I believe we need to focus on verse 5 to 7, where Jesus says, Now I am going to Him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, let's here just first clear up one or two secondary points, but important points before focusing on the main point that Jesus makes here. First of all then, in verse 5, Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Now you see, there are some critics who make an awful lot out of this, pointing out that in John 13, 36, Peter actually did ask this very question. And that in John fourteen five, Thomas at least touched on issues related to this, with this being seen as some kind of blatant inconsistency, contradiction within John, that then fatally undermines the authority and so the trustworthiness of the word of God and it makes me wonder sometimes about some in apparently intelligent people they are so biased against christianity that they make what basically are ridiculous attacks i mean don't you think that john the author of this gospel that if he'd been making things up, rather than recording what actually happened, that he would have been able, if he'd wanted, to present a nice, smooth, logical account, something lacking all the, the rough edges of real life. You know, it's the fact that these rough edges are there that, for me, help to confirm that this is what actually happened. And if you take the time to actually look at what John goes on to say here... With a little bit of imagination and understanding of the human condition, then I think it's not too difficult to understand what's really going on. Verse 6, he says, because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. So, you see, though some of the disciples might have asked the question about where Jesus was going, yet the reality is that before his death and his resurrection, they never really grasped what was happening, what was going on, and what was to come, either for Jesus or for them. At times, someone like Peter did seem to come close, but then his human inadequacy, his human fail- failures and limitations came back into play, and he fell back with the rest of the disciples into confusion. But here you see, at this point, as in the preceding chapters, Jesus has been driving home to the disciples. The fact that soon he will be taken from them. Well, the disciples are devastated by grief at the very thought of this. Jesus has been at the center, the very focal point of their lives for three years. And they cannot get beyond this. They're consumed by this to the extent that they're not even asking the question why this is happening and what this might mean for them and for Jesus going forward. The other secondary detail here we need to clear up before concentrating on the main point Jesus makes about the ministry of the Spirit here within us relates to what he says in verse 7. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, some people sometimes get confused about what this verse is saying. Is it saying that for some reason, Jesus and the Holy Spirit cannot be together, cannot minister together to men and women? Well, no, it cannot be saying that. Because we know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together form the Trinity. We know that they are one God in three persons who live together in perfect fellowship. Rather, what this is to do with is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in relation to the ministry of Jesus. That is the Spirit's purpose, is to bring glory to Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the ministry of the Spirit, as it says just a little further on in in John 16, verse 14. He will bring glory to me, to me, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. But you see, the Spirit cannot fully bring glory to Jesus until Jesus has fulfilled his ministry. That is, until he has died, risen, and then ascended to the Father in glory. So Jesus has to finish His work on earth and return to the Father before the Spirit can begin His main work of bringing glory to Jesus for who He is, for all that He's done to, for us. Before He can proclaim to us and through us and then release into our lives all the victory of Jesus has won for us. But there's one very practical implication of this. Let me just read verse 7 of its entirety to to get this to you. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Now, do you get that? You see, we sometimes maybe say ourselves or hear people say, you know, if only I'd been there. If only I'd been there. If only I'd been in Israel when Jesus was there. Even been one of his disciples, you know, how wonderful that would have been. Nothing could be better than that. And yet what does Jesus say here? It is for your good that I'm going away. You see, in Israel, the time of Jesus... They could only stand in the presence of God. They could only experience the power and the love of God when Jesus was right there by their side. But now, in the time, the age of the Spirit, all God's people at all times, wherever they are, whatever they're facing, can know God's presence, God's power and love and so much else beside and not just witness it. Not just look upon it, wonderful as that is, but can know it in our hearts, in our lives, by the ministry of God's Holy Spirit. But what though is the the main feature, the defining feature of the Holy Spirit? What is it as he works within in the lives of Christians as they face opposition, persecution, and hostility? Which in our society today, incidentally, so often manifests itself in apathy and disinterest. Well, it's there in verse 7 again. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. Now, the Greek word that here is translated, counselor, paraclete. is in other versions translated, comforter, advocate, etc., And when you understand the the root meaning of this word, you can see where these various translations are coming from because, you see, the roots of this word are in the Greco-Roman courtroom. The idea being of, of some kind of legal representative who draws alongside someone on trial to encourage and exhort to help them prepare their defense. The translation that's probably most open to misunderstanding is the the King James comforter. Because you see, while when the King James first came out to comfort did mean, in addition to other things, to strengthen and encourage, yet in English today when, when we think of comforter or a comforter, we think more of an arm round the shoulder, of a consoling word, I just sit there and it'll be all right. Soon. Well, the Holy Spirit does, in a sense, put his arm round our shoulder. But he doesn't leave us there. He draws us to our feet. And he works within us. He stands with us. And he enables us to face up to whatever challenges confront us. Now, here's a, a true story I found that illustrates something of what I'm, I'm trying to say. And that is up until the late 1940s. Professional baseball was a segregated sport in the United States. Then the the Brooklyn Dodgers signed the first African American to play in their major league. Jackie Robinson, an absolutely amazing athlete. American football, basketball, athletics. He could perform at a high level in them all. Many people thought that that baseball wasn't actually his best sport. But Jackie Robinson, in the the early stages of his baseball career, suffered a lot of abuse and prejudice, not just from the fans, but from his fellow players. But in a game still fairly early in his career, Jackie Robinson made a basic error. He made a blunder. And all the crowd began to jeer and to catcall. And his head went right down. A fellow team member by the name of Pee-wee Reese trotted towards him. Now I thought he got the nickname Pee-wee because of some kind of health problem. But apparently in the United States, a Pee-wee is a little marble. So he was a, in his childhood, he was a champion at marbles. Pee-wee though, he was a veteran on the team and he was one of its most popular players. Also born in Kentucky and brought up in in Louisville, Kentucky, he came from one of the most racially segregated communities in the United States. And no doubt everyone there wondered what Pee Wee was going to do. Well, he got to Jackie Robinson, got down beside him and laughed and joked a little bit. He put his arm around him He lifted him up, and then he turned with him to face the crowd. And quietness descended until finally that crowd fell silent. There's still a statue of us somewhere in Brooklyn. And that moment marked a turning point in Jackie Robinson's career. And he went on to become one of the greats of American baseball. But you see, that's a picture of the kind of ministry that the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life of every Christian. As we face trials and challenges, opposition and antagonism, He wants to comfort us, yes, but He wants to do more than that. He wants to empower us. He wants to lift us up and encourage us. He wants us to enable us to face whatever challenges come our way. For the other aspect of the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do within us, for that we need to turn to verses 12 to 16 here, where Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Now, this this passage ranges fairly widely, but let's just get a hold of its central truth. That is, Jesus stands at the center of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we've already said, the core ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus, including helping the people of Jesus to live in such a way in all of life's ups and life's downs, to live in such a way as to bring glory to Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, as we actively seek the Holy Spirit, as we open our lives and submit our lives to the Holy Spirit, will lead us Primarily through God's word, but also in other ways. Into living lives that are consistent with Jesus. Living lives that line up with the character, the principles, priorities, etc. that Jesus reflected in his life. Now, I have to say that there are those who interpret what is said in verse 13. And he will tell you what is to come who interpret this in terms of the spirit Bringing to the church, right up to today, new revelation, even new doctrine. I want to say, I don't believe that this is what this is saying. And I also want to say, please beware, because this kind of teaching leads the church into great danger. This is what's led to the emergence of cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Moonies. New revelation. New doctrine. But you know, in our own day, there is another subtle development going on here. And that there are those today who would call themselves, claim for themselves, the label of evangelical. But who see that the teaching of the Bible increasingly brings us into opposition with the direction in which our society is travelling. More and more, that's the case. And their response to this is to say that instead of the church coming under the authority of the Bible, what we need to do today is rather to set the Bible under the authority of the church. And to gather and then as the church, we need to come, we need to seek the leading of the Spirit, and then we need to decide what we believe the Bible, what God is actually saying in our day. Which almost inevitably incidentally, seems to lead to the parts of the Bible which seem to be in conflict with the direction of our society that challenge our society, being seen as no longer relevant, no longer applicable to life today. That is, in my opinion, most certainly not what Jesus is saying here in John's Gospel when he says that the Spirit will lead you will tell you what is to come. What then does this mean? I believe that first of all, this is speaking of the ministry of the Spirit in the first place to the apostles and authors of the books of the New Testament, which led to our New Testament. And then following on from this, I believe that this then refers to the continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit to the people of God And as we seek to live our life and respond to life's challenges, and we seek to do that through the lens of Jesus and of God's Word, then as we are open to the Spirit, so the Spirit of God will lead us through life. Will give us understanding of what's actually going on beneath the surface spiritually in our ever-fast-changing world. And will then enable us to live our lives in a hostile and increasingly spiritually apathetic and even, well, a spiritual apathetic is good enough, enable us to live our lives in a God-honoring way. That, I believe, is how the Spirit works within us, and so enables us to face the challenges of living for Jesus Christ in the world of today. Now, what I want us now to move on to do is just to spend a few minutes looking at The Spirit working through us, which is what I believe believe primarily, verse 8 to 11 here, are about the Spirit working through us, through the people of God. Let me just read these verses. When He comes, that is the Spirit, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, Because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now what that, the word that that here is translated convict, what that word literally means is to expose. With the idea of bringing the world's sin out into the open, bringing it out into the light where it can be seen. what it is. And then calling the world to, giving the world the opportunity to repent. And again, I believe that the, the primary way, not exclusively, but the primary way in which the Holy Spirit works to do this is through the people of God. Using our lives as they are lived to honour God, using God's Word, as we live that Word and share it and preach that Word, using us to expose the world's sin, to convict and to bring them to the point where they have that choice of repentance and faith or rejection of God and facing the consequences of that. And what's fascinating, I think, here is that in what we find in these verses is is basically really the trial of Jesus, but in reverse. You see, now it's the world that's in the dock and in the words of, of Gary Burge, he says, the spirit paraclete presses, passes to the attack as if in a court of law, the defender now becomes prosecutor and judge. But how does the Spirit of God use God's people to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? Well, we're told here first that conviction in regard to sin arises because men don't believe in me. Don't believe what? Don't believe that Jesus is God become man. Don't believe that they are sinners. Don't believe that they've turned from God and that this sin now separates them from God. Don't believe that they need a Savior. That Jesus Christ had to die in our place on the cross. That only the perfect, sonless, sin of God, Son of God, His life given could pay the price of all our sin. But you see, Deep down, people know that there's something wrong. Deep down, people know that life, they know that they are not what they should be. God wants to use his people. He wants to use us. He wants to use our lives. He wants to use our words to awaken them to the fact, to expose them to the truth that their problem is sin, and that they need a Savior. They need Jesus. Then we're told in verse 10, another aspect of this exposure of this conviction lies in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. You see, this this moves on. The reaction of much of humanity, to this fact of sin, to their sense of personal unworthiness. The way that many people in our world today react to this is to try and find some device, some way to try and to work as hard as they can to become righteous. To find some kind of, of self-righteousness, and that might be through obedience to some kind of religious practice and ritual, or it might be by good deeds or caring for the poor, all sorts of other various ways. But Jesus wants to use his people to expose, to convict the world of the inadequacy of all their pretensions. And we're told that the, and we're told here that the Holy Spirit enables us to do this, because he has gone, Jesus has gone to the Father. If you see, on the one hand, it's as we've seen, it's because Jesus has gone to the Father, that God's people have received, oh no, it's happening again, that God's people have received the the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's God's, Spirit working in the lives of God's people that then enable them, by grace, by faith, to live lives that expose the emptiness of self-righteousness for what it is. As we live holy lives by grace, that exposes the emptiness of self-righteousness. But also, on the other hand, somebody needs to get some oil on that thing, the other hand, the fact that Jesus has gone to the Father, that he's gone where we can see him no longer. That is the fact that by his resurrection, that which has never been effectively disproved. This, the fact of his resurrection, his righteousness over sin and death and Satan, his victory have been proved by the resurrection. And this again exposes the emptiness of this world's righteousness for what it is. So you see, as the church in the power of the Spirit, we are called, that's what this is saying, to live out in our lives and to preach the resurrection. The final aspect of the exposure, the conviction that the Spirit brings is in regard to judgment. But it says, and in regard to judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. Now you see, at the cross... In the resurrection, there Jesus turned the work of Satan on its head. Satan thought at the cross that he had Jesus judged and condemned. But as Jesus rose again, the tables were turned. And it's Satan who now stands condemned. And the Holy Spirit, he wants to use God's people. He wants to use us, each one of us who know Jesus, by the way that we live, by the words that we share. He wants to use us to make the world aware of this, to expose them to this truth, to open up them up to this truth, that Satan, he now stands condemned. So, where do we stand? Well, without Jesus without faith in the grace of God offered to us in Jesus, we too are condemned. And the world needs to know that. Our families and our friends and our neighbors need to know that. And God, by His Spirit, He wants to use us to make them aware of that. He wants to use us to drive home that conviction to their hearts. So tonight, may we as God's people be expectant and open and ready that the Holy Spirit might do the work that he wants to do within us and through us. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for all that you want to do in and through your people. And Father, that's in and through each one of our lives. Lord, you want to to work in our hearts. And then you want to work through our lives. You want to use us to demonstrate to the world the might and the glory and the power of Jesus of what he's achieved for us on the cross and of his victory on the resurrection, of his lordship over life and death and Satan, and all the powers of evil. Father, you want us, by the way that we live, to demonstrate that. And you want us to speak that word out into our world. Father, give us the courage. Give us, by the power of your Spirit, the kind of lives of integrity that will enable us to do this. And Lord, as we receive opportunities to share this Jesus, Lord, help us to take them. Help us to take them. In Jesus' name, amen. We to finish tonight by singing, There is Power in the Name of Jesus. pray. And Father, we pray that by your Spirit working within us in the challenges of life as well as in the the easy and good times of life, but that by your Spirit working within us, transforming us, empowering and enabling us, that we will be able to live lives that demonstrate to this world that there is power. In that wonderful name of Jesus. That there's life changing, life transforming power in the name of Jesus. Lord, use us. Give us the desire to want to be used. Because we know if we've got the desire, the opportunities will come. Use us for your glory. Amen.